the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strock. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by giving us a high rating on iTunes. With us today is the highly respected business leader, Howard Bihar. Hailed as a hero of conscious capitalism, a passionate advocate for leading with purpose, and a devoted student and teacher of the leadership of the servant leadership model, Howard Bihar inspires everyone to be a servant leader and to lead with their values first. He's the author of the bestseller, It's Not About the Coffee, Leadership Principles from a Life at Starbucks. Howard Bihar started working at Starbucks in 1989 when the company had just begun to venture outside the American Northwest region. Initially serving as vice president of sales and operations, he grew the retail business from 28 to more than 400 stores by the time he was named president of Starbucks Coffee International in 1995. Under Bihar's leadership, Starbucks opened its first location in Tokyo in 1996. Following this historic opening, over the next three years, he introduced the Starbucks brand across Asia and the United Kingdom. After a two-year hiatus, he returned to Starbucks as president of Starbucks North America until his retirement in March 2007. He also served for 12 years as a director of the company. Howard Bihar, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Thank you very much. Howard, how do you define servant leadership? This is an important concept we hear a lot about and that you're a leading proponent of. Well, it's the desire to serve rather, rather than lead. You want to serve first and, and lead second. And uh, it's the, the basic tenet of it is this, that, you know, if, if you're leading an organization, right, your whole, you begin with the idea that you serve your people first before they serve the organization. If you help your people get what they want and what they need out of life and you help them be better human beings, then they'll return that favor by serving the organization. Many leaders think it's the other way around, that they're there to be served. But it's my belief and a lot of other people's belief that that is, is an old approach to how leadership should be done. In today's world, you know, you, you kind of wonder, you know, do people are people really getting it or not? But I'm, I'm committed to it and it works and it's it's not manipulative. It's it's how we should be living our lives. It's it's not just a leadership uh, idea. It's a, it's an idea for living your life. Well, there's a lot in there, Howard. Let's unpack it a little bit to take advantage of your tremendous experience and thought on this. Do you recall when you first became aware of this as a concept? Yeah, it was about 19, uh, about 1975. And a guy, a guy that I was working for, I was about uh, just about 30 years old, and a guy that I reported to said, I have this little booklet I'd like you to read. And it was written by a man named Robert Greenleaf, who coined the term servant leadership. And, um, and he wrote this little book, The Leader as Servant. And um, uh, he, he had worked at AT&T in the 40s and 50s as a head of organizational development. And 
he, when he retired, he looked back at his career and he asked himself a question. Who are the leaders that somehow uh, made their organizations really work? And he came to the conclusion that it was the ones that intrinsically understood that they were there to serve their people, not be served by their people. And he determined that by how well the organization survived after the people, after those leaders left their organizations. The ones that were servant leadership, you know, they didn't know what the, those were words that weren't even really in a lexicon at that time. But they, uh, the ones that intrinsically understood that they were there to serve, their organizations after they left survived and blossomed. The ones where their leaders felt that they should be served were the ones that caved in on themselves. And it had to do with me versus we. Servant leadership models are based on we. Uh, other leadership models are based on me. Howard Bihar, you mentioned this is a relatively new concept, at least in the corporate world. Some might suggest it's a very old concept. Oh, yes. it's so old. how do you respond to that? How do you think of the antecedents for this going back in history? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, Greenleaf just coined the term servant leadership. He didn't invent servant leadership. Servant leadership has been going on for centuries, for thousands of years. And, uh, you know, the great, some of the great people, Jesus, Muhammad, uh, um, Moses, uh, Abraham, you know, I mean, through our biblical times, many of them were servant leaders. Not all, by the way. Um, you know, the Bible is filled full of greed. And, um, but it was, and then along the way, as, you know, as human beings developed, there were servant leaders all along, but there were also autocratic leaders. And, you know, the interesting thing is not much has changed. We have the same thing today. We have some people that think that they're there to be served and some people that understand that they're there to serve. But yeah, it's thousands of years old. It's it's probably from the beginning of humankind. So if one has a servant leadership model, it sounds as though because that's so laser focused on those one is serving, whether it's colleagues, yeah. employers, I mean, employees and so on, uh, customers, that it might encompass a whole range of specific leadership and management approaches. How do you think about that? Yeah, servant leadership is just a, uh, you know, it just words to describe uh, how how we how we uh, live our lives. You know, an example, you know, servant leadership goes on in families. We wouldn't call it that, but where parents are there to help their kids uh, get what they want and need out of life, and trying to develop kids that are responsible and care about other people. Uh, absolutely, it's 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 universal, and so conscious capitalism was an offshoot of servant leadership. Matter of fact, when John Mackey uh, created those words, conscious capitalism, you know, he almost used the word servant capitalism. So, how did you apply this principle in your executive positions at Starbucks? Well, it was just the way that I talk about it. That my my goal was always to you know, um, not to make more productive people out of people, make people more productive. I felt they needed to do that themselves. But I wanted to help people grow as human beings. That was my primary responsibility, to grow as human beings. And in so doing, they would grow as professionals and uh, they, they would contribute to the world in which they lived. And I was, a, you know, I, I tried to help them be all they could be. 
I wasn't trying to get them to do certain things for Starbucks. I mean, certainly I hired people to do certain jobs, of course. But how I treated them was with a servant's heart. And that uh, I treated them with respect, with dignity, with caring, with love. And I mean, I do mean love. Uh, and, you know, and that, was I perfect? No. You know, I have a short fuse and, and I'm an A-type personality. I'm a business guy. I love to get results. And I like all that. But I never thought we should do it on the backs of people. I always thought we should do it with people. And if I benefited, they should benefit. And they should benefit first before I did. When you're serving in executive positions or consulting positions or on the board of Starbucks, where did you tend to find support or opposition to this approach? You know, what was interesting about that is that, you know, I mean, we would hire, you know, we were hiring so many people at Starbucks, you know, from all over the, all over the world, all over the country. Very few people came with this idea. A lot, most of them came with the idea that the leader is boss, right? The, the autocratic style of leadership. And, you know, we tried to sort through that and not hire all those kind of people. But every once in a while, somebody would slip through the cracks. But what we had in the organization, we had a, a system we called Mission Review. And Mission Review was something that, that all of our people could use in, in their journey at Starbucks. And it was, goes like this. Every, every month in their paycheck, there would be a little card, and the, there was one question. The question was, what have we done to support our mission statement or not to support our mission statement? And they could write that to us, and we had to get back to them within 72 hours. And usually the issues were always around people, right? It was always around leadership. My, my leader doesn't care about me. My leader, you know, is abusive, my, you know, or, or it could be, you know, it wasn't just what have we done wrong, what have we done right, too, they could write in that little mission review, and hey, my leader is wonderful. I know that he cares or she cares about me. And so we had filters to help us do that. Uh, but, you know, that's, you know, you know, those are where the conflicts are. It's always, you know, it's always about people and about where they come from. You know, one of the big challenges for any organization is a recession, such as the Great Recession, the 2008-2009 period, when Starbucks, like other companies, made a lot of adjustments. And of course, in 2020, 2021, Starbucks is also making a lot of adjustments. How does the servant leadership approach inform how to work through challenging times for the entire organization? Well, number one, absolute truth. That's number one. No BS, no hiding behind anything. Here's where we are. Here's why we are where we are, right? That's number one. Number two is being willing to ask for their help, not being, not thinking that you have to have all the answers. I will tell you this, that during the 2007, 8, 9 recession, Starbucks did not do a good job of being servant-led. I, I, I was really disappointed in what we did. By that time, I was, I was just on the board, and um, we, we went through a lot of layoffs. Now, so we were going to have layoffs because we closed 600 stores. You know that you're going to have that kind of last, but we we laid off a lot of people that shouldn't be laid off because we we're worried about the stock price. We weren't going to go broke. We had no debt. We had cash in the bank, and we were still profitable. But but we didn't live up to what I felt was servant leadership. Now during this time, they have absolutely lived up to servant leadership. They they they've had to lay off a few people, but very few people. They've even 
kept our aces on the payroll and gave them health insurance when they weren't on the payroll. And they did the things to, to honor human beings. Howard Bihar, let's dig a little deeper into the excellent observation you made about the history of servant leaders and servant leadership. Who are some examples that you would point to from history to help people understand what servant leadership can be? Well, you know, a couple that come to mind, Juan Gandhi was definitely a servant leader. He, you know, he was there to serve the people of India and, and everybody understood that and that's how he acted. Mother Teresa, servant leader. Schindler, from, you remember the movie Schindler's List? Absolutely. Servant leader, you know, could you know help save hundreds, thousands of Jewish people because of what he did and the chances he took. And all throughout history, we've had those people. Um, you know, the ones that I, what do I think of today in the business world? Jim Senegal from Costco, one of the founders of Costco. Bruce Nordstrom from Nordstrom, servant leader. Um, uh, let's see, who else would I? Um, uh, gosh, what's his name from? Went to from Boeing to Ford. Um, oh, McInerney. Yeah, no, not McInerney. No. Uh, it, uh, my, oh, the former CEO. Yes. Um, CEO Ford, but he he went from Boeing and went to Ford. He was a servant leader at Boeing. I remember I was sitting around the table, and um, and he uh, I was talking to a bunch of people that worked at Boeing, and he wasn't there. And I and I said, who is who is the who is the leader at Boeing that you all respect and why? And and they without a question they all mentioned this guy's name. I'm so sorry. I'm trying to find it myself. Boeing CEOs. Anyway, but but and they all said exactly the same thing that it was this person. And I said why? He said because we know he cares about us. Well, let's talk about a point that some of the critics make about servant leadership as an actionable concept. Some argue that servant leaders, such as the ones you mentioned, uh, particularly Gandhi, who was, I guess, the ultimate level, they feel that those models aren't necessarily widely applicable. So, for example, would you say that Winston Churchill was a servant leader? Um, would I say he was a servant leader? I would say he was a good leader for his time, but I wouldn't say he was a servant leader. Because? Because he was pretty much about himself. Would it be possible for a servant leader along the lines you are suggesting by your examples to have defeated Adolf Hitler? Uh, probably not. Yeah. So what does that tell you it isn't about the, the limits? Power. But, but, uh, but, you know, having said that, you know, maybe I, maybe I think that differently. I mean, a servant leader, you know, let's take a general, right, that, mm -hmm. uh, uh, a general that is uh, in a war and trying to get his or, his or her troops to, to do something, take that town, whatever it happens to be. You know, the ones that people really followed were the ones that, they, that the, the soldiers knew cared about them. You know, the great leaders in the military today don't tell people what to do. They tell them they, they tell them what we're trying to do. They don't tell them how to do it, and they tell them why, you know, which is the most important part of servant leadership, not the what, it's the why. And so, you know, I think, yeah, there were, there were great generals that their, their troops would have done anything for them. 
Is Patton an example of a servant leader in your mind? No. Because? He was about self. But that doesn't mean that he didn't. See, the idea that uh, there are sometimes, let's give an example. I might not be a servant leader if, if um, we have a disaster. I might be an autocratic leader. I say, everybody, out of the building. Right? We got a fire, get out. There's no time for discussion. Now, I guess you could maybe call that servant leadership, but, you know, it's more autocratic style leadership because it's it's appropriate for the time. It also would only work, presumably, based upon your earlier definition, if people trusted you to begin with. If you had been autocratic, and they wouldn't yeah. have responded. Yeah, they, they would have to trust you to begin with. So, you know, it's servant leadership isn't this soft, you know, everybody thinks it's a soft, gentle mushy type of leader you know you only tell people you love them you never you never uh, coach them you never you know uh, you don't drive for results it's the opposite of that servant leadership is about performance it's about getting the job done it's just how you do it here's let me give you an example and this is a good example from today or from recent bill gates and steve ballmer you know everyone would say they were great leaders they were not they were not great leaders they were autocratic. They were abusive, right? But they were might have been okay. Did they get results? Yes, they got results. But what happened over time with that style? It caved in on itself, and everybody was leaving Microsoft. Yes. Right? They could, and they couldn't stand Steve Ballmer. Yes. Right? And so what happens? They make a change in leadership, and they bring a guy that was in the company, right? Uh, the CEO of Microsoft, present day CEO of Microsoft, he was a servant leadership, servant leader. He was about people. So what does he do? He changes the whole cultural model of Microsoft. Were they still about performance? Yes, but not on the backs of people. And it, But they treated people with respect and dignity instead of abusing them. It used to be if you came in with a, an idea that Bill or Steve didn't like, he would, they would scream at him, call him stupid, get out of here, I don't have time for you. That's not the way it is now. So what happened? Totally turned Microsoft around. Microsoft stock was flat for almost 15 years. So where do companies tend to drop the ball on servant leadership, even if they intend to do the right thing? Uh, by uh, letting it, by misinterpreting the idea of it, that it's not about results, that it's not about performance. That's usually where it, they drop the ball. They, you know, they think, well, if I'm just nice to my people, and I care about my people, and uh, I give my people everything that they need, you know, that that's what servant leadership is about. It's about those things, but it's also about expecting and demanding performance. So how do you respond to people at the early phase of their careers or in low levels of hierarchical positions that they too should act as servant leaders and what can be done to bolster them in this respect? Well, if they're sitting in an organization that is not servant led, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult for many of them. And I can understand why, but they have to look at their world, right? They're the microcosm of where they're working. And within that, be servant leaders there. It's amazing how organizations can change with coming from the bottom up, you know, as one person has success, I was kind of like that. 
I mean, I, I use servant leadership in a company where it wasn't a servant-led company. Starbucks was not a servant-led company when I got there. There was fear. There was, it, it, you know, uh, Howard tended to be more um, uh, blamer-in-chief, you know, rather than supporter-in-chief. And, um, and when I came there, I kept pushing that we've got to think differently about this. Now, Howard became a great servant leader over time as he understood it and he, he accepted it and he practiced it and learned about it. But at the beginning, it wasn't that way. And there were lots of people that pushed back against me, even, even people at different levels of the organization. I was always amazed at that, but that's the way that it is. You know, some people, one day I was giving a speech at the University of Washington and my wife and I had sponsored this class between master's level business students and master's level social work students. And I was trying to get them to understand each other, to create a common language because they don't understand them very each other very well. And one guy stood up and we were talking about servant leadership. He said, you know, I just can't, that's not how I can live. I need a coach that yells and screams at me, you know, and tells me I'm no good or a bum. That motivates me. I said, well, you know, different strokes for different folks. You know, well, and that's and I, the way he is served. So that may be that's the way now. But I could I said, well, you know, I, I, I appreciate that. You probably would not be good working with my organization. Mm -hmm. And because that's the way he would treat people. You mentioned how these concepts apply all throughout our lives with family, community and so on. How does the digital culture affect servant leadership as a practical matter? Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I'm not an expert at it, but I think that how it, how it, where it was headed without, you know, what's recently happened with Zoom and all of this all, uh, kind of stuff, that it was just, you know, about emails. I think it was uh, deteriorating, could deteriorate servant leadership because it's, you get missing misinterpreted so easily when it's just uh, an email or a text and 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 because you can't see servant leadership is about being aware of other people and and how they're reacting to what you're saying and so you have to have an antenna but you got to see eyes and faces it's also interesting that today just don't work as well you know mm -hmm. or or eyes i mean the eyes of just reading a text but but yeah, I think it's had an effect, but I'll tell you how it's had a positive effect, is that with the age of the internet, right, you can't hide. Leaders cannot hide. Look at the guy that started uh, Uber. Yeah, absolute asshole, excuse the expression. Yes. Okay. And in the old days, he would have he been there forever. But what happened, the internet took over and all of a sudden everything gets out. People that are working there are talking about him and the board finally had to react and they kicked him out. Again, another one. Um, uh, what's the work we work? Yes. Another one, exactly the same. Newman, I think his name was. Yeah. You know, a, a, a abusive, um, uh, all sorts of sexual harassment, uh, you know, all sorts of things that weren't servant leadership. And he out, company goes down. You know, Uber almost went down. It's interesting because politicians have had to live in that kind of scrutiny for a long time, but now people 
simply in private life do. We had a similar incident in Southern California in late 2020, where a CEO of a company was filmed beating his dog on a security camera yeah. mercilessly, and he was gone by the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the way you can't hide anymore. And, uh, you know, people do, you know, uh, yeah, I wouldn't call our president a servant leader by any stretch of the imagination. He's, he, is a, he is about himself. He's about me. And he may have some successes along the way. It's, I'm not, you know, by the way, that one thing everybody has to understand, servant leadership is not a recipe for financial success. Servant leadership is about how you want to live your life. Money or no money. Accolades or no accolades. It's about it's a value system of leadership. With, without going into partisan yeah. questions, a lot of people would argue. In fact, I would include myself in this that American politics has shown very little in the way of servant leadership for a very long time, irrespective of partisan yeah, I, preferences. I, I totally agree with that. How do we get at that, Howard Bihar? By holding them accountable, by not accepting not accepting things that are out of the realm of servant leadership, you know it's it's you know it, it, you're catching me at one of these times where I'm really been really frustrated, and because it, everything that's been happening goes so goes against my value system, not my not Democrat Republican kind of things, but against the things that I think that are human values, you know. And I think that we're teaching our kids the wrong lesson. We're teaching the, our kids that yelling and screaming that abuse of other people, greed, is, is okay. And it's not. And our country cannot survive that way. It will not survive that way. It's what happened in Rome. It's what happened in Greece. It, it's happened throughout the centuries. And... Um, you know, we gotta, we have to wake up and understand that each of us has a responsibility to the other person living in this country. And as and, and no matter, the most important person we're going to have to lead is ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And we have to hold ourselves accountable to how we treat other people. And, you know, it's hard right now when you see, when you see our, our political leaders, some business leaders not doing that, a lot of them. Well, Howard Bihar, that's a good place to move toward a few questions about your own life and work. You're a corporate executive, a consultant, a writer, a speaker. So the golden thread through all that is that you're an educator. Right. What do you seek to impart to young people in their 20s, say, as they prepare for the future in this highly uncertain time? Um, number one, know yourself. Okay, I understand who you are. I have, you can't see it, but right in front of me, I have a piece of paper, uh, eight by 10 or whatever it is. And on this piece of paper, it has three uh, columns, or not columns, three little uh, sections. The first section is my mission statement. The second section is what I call Howard's core values. And the third section is how I do everything. And I've had this thing for 45 years. And I've changed some things now and then, and but uh, and then I have a quote on the back to remind me that I can change anytime I want. And but my mission statement in life is to, to live my life every day, nurturing and inspiring the human spirit of myself and others. And then my core values are honesty, 
fairness, respect for self and others, responsibility, integrity, trust in self and others, caring and love. Though that's how I do things in life, how I measure my, so those things are not just values, they're actions and decisions, right? They're not just a word. They're, honesty is an action. It's something you do, something you are. And so I try to, when I vote, if when I go to vote this year, I don't, I don't look Republican, Democrat, right? I look at these core values and I say, do these people match those core values? And that's how I vote. And, you know, you don't always know. And then how I do everything with a purpose greater than myself, with passion, with persistence, with patience, with, form, with performance, and for people. And I live by this document. So if I'm talking to young people that say today, I say, go online, you'll get a list of three to 400 core va or values. Out of those 300, narrow it down to start with 50. Get down to 50 words that match your core values. And then from 50, get it down to 10 that are your real core values. It doesn't mean that there aren't other values that you live by but the ones that are really core to who you are. And then take those values and define what they mean to you and how they will inform the decisions and the actions that you will take in your life. And write a personal mission statement. Why are you, why are you on this earth? Why are you on this earth? You know, and, um, you know, and how do you want to live your life? You know? You know, you ought to know those things about yourself because they should direct how you spend your time and where you work and who you will work with and who you choose as a partner in your life and how you raise your kids, how you vote, how you treat your family, how you treat your friends. With all you know and have done, Howard Bihar, in your career, looking back, what would you tell the 20-year-old Howard Bihar? Do, the, do this work earlier. Do this work earlier. Don't, you can do this work at 15 or 12. You can begin this process of knowing yourself and understanding yourself and carving out this place in, in the world. In your work on servant leadership for the past 30 plus years, are there significant matters relating to leadership and management and communications about which you've changed your mind? Yes, yes. Uh, in my early days, I was president of a company, uh, a real estate company, real estate development company. And I became president. I'd never been president. You're talking to a guy that barely got out of high school. I had a couple of years of community college. So I never thought I'd get an opportunity to be president of, of a public company. But I was. And the company was in trouble and we had to figure out what to do. And I called my team together and I, I said, you know, we got a problem. What should we do? And, and we developed this plan how, where we were going to cut costs, what, who we were going to lay off, the departments that would have to go. And we, it, my administrative assistant typed it all out and we gave it to the head of human resources to go make copies. She goes to make copies and she leaves the document on the copy machine. Oh. This is on a Friday afternoon, about three o'clock. So yes. by eight o'clock that evening, my phone was ringing off the hook. Somebody had found the copy and found all the notes and you know, I'm figuring I've been in this job three months that I've just spent my last day as president of this company. And I call the meeting for Saturday morning with all the direct reports again. And I asked the question, what should we do? As I went around the room, pretty much the general gist of, well, just deny it. 
just say that, you know, we're not really doing all these things. It's just, you know, we're, you know, we're just thinking about it, et cetera, et cetera. And my administrative assistant, her name was Lori Christmas. And she tapped me on the shoulder and she said, Howard, only the truth sounds like the truth. Only the truth sounds like the truth. And I just looked at her and I said, you know, Lori, you're right. And so, you know, I, that Monday morning, I called the meeting of all the people in the company and I laid out everything and I apologized to them. And I owned the fact that we'd done the stuff that it got to them before I wanted to, but here's what we're going through. And I don't know who's going to get laid up, but I promise everybody will know by the end of the week. I won't let it go longer than the end of the week. So that was five days. And we're in this meeting and one guy stood up and he said, Howard, he said, I don't know if I'm going to be one of the ones to get laid off, but I want to tell you right here and now, I will help you and the, and the organization through this crisis. I appreciate that you told us the truth and I want to support you and the organization. One by one, everybody in the room stood up with this guy. It was such a valuable lesson. All of the truth sounds like the truth. Trust your people. You don't need to hide. Be authentic. You know, be honest. You know, be caring. And treat them as if they're human beings. And they'll help you. So it was a valuable lesson. Howard Bihar, you are on, if I might say, the older side. A point in life where people traditionally were retired. And perhaps they still often do retire. What is your thinking about how you can serve uniquely and effectively in this time of life? How can you best add value at this time in life? And who are exemplars you think of in this respect? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I'm 76. I'm going to be 76 tomorrow, actually. And, uh, you know, can I just tell you a really short story? So when I retired from Starbucks, I always used to tell people, you are not Starbucks and Starbucks is not you. You know, we brought you to Starbucks because of who you already were. And when you leave Starbucks, you still you may have learned a few things, but you're still a whole human being. And so don't get trapped into this. I am Starbucks. And that's all there is in life. But I fell into the trap. You know, Starbucks was as much my company as it was Howard Schultz's company. I loved it. I loved the people. It, it was one of those things that just fit me like a glove, the coffee business. You know, who would have ever thought? And. So I retire, and I was kind of angry at the time. This was the 2007, 8, 9, because I was angry that we laid off all those people when we didn't have to, and I was mad at Howard. And I'd go to bed angry, I'd wake up angry, and I was—I had just lost sight of everything in life. And, you know, I, I've been pretty introspective my whole life, and I've always gotten outside help when I've needed it. And I was depressed, seriously depressed. And I was laying on the sofa one day, I was reading a book, and I was just... You know, I was thinking to myself, God, my life isn't worth living. You know, that's how bad it was. And all of a sudden, into my head came these simple little words. Howard, your life's work is still your life's work. And I, and I, you know, it was like, where did those words come from? You know, and I repeated myself. My life's work is still my life's work. And my life's work was about serving people. And that's how what I did at Starbucks. That's really all I did, you know. No more than that. I wasn't so I wasn't that creative or that smart. I just I just was about people. And all of a sudden, over about a month's period of time, I came out of that depression and and I realized, yes, it's true. My life's work was still my life's work. 
And so that's what I, how I live my life. Every day to nurture and inspire the human spirit of myself and others. And the reason why I say myself first is that I've learned if I don't take care of myself, then it's very difficult to do anything for anybody else. And so I try to do everything, something every day that serves another human being. Sometimes it's just picking up a piece of paper off the street. You know, I serve other people by doing that. Sometimes it's doing what I'm doing right now. Sometimes, you know, I have a group of young people tonight that are all in their teens and early 20s that want to talk about life and leadership because people are interested now. And so I do that. And I do some coaching and I, you know, I, I just try to live my life according to that example with my grandkids, with my wife, you know, uh, I just try to live that way. And, you know, hopefully that will be good enough. You know, scientists point out what we all observe that neuroplasticity in the brain tends to become more limited as people get older. We all know a lot of older people who seem to stop learning now and again. You clearly are not of that ilk. So what? how do you keep yourself learning new things? And in particular, is there anything in the past five years that you've learned that changed your life unexpectedly and for the better? Uh, yes, uh, about, about food, uh, about food intake. I was chronically overweight and, uh, you know, I, I liked food, but I would eat, I was a nervous eater. And since I am an anxiety filled person, you know, I'm always pushing myself, which creates some internal anxiety sometimes a lot actually. And so food became that go-to thing. And so I finally came to the conclusion that I needed to do something and I didn't know what to do. And my wife kept pushing me. She said, Howard, why don't you try Weight Watchers? I said, Weight Watchers, that's for a bunch of women, you know? <laughs> oh, bad old women. I don't want to do that. And I'm not going to those damn meetings, you know? That's not for me. And, and she said, no, really, why don't you just take a look? So I did. I went to a meeting. And then I said, okay, I kind of, you know, did I like it? Yeah, it was okay. I did, and then I came back. And then I came back. And I got on the system, and you know something? Every Saturday morning, right now it's online, at 7.30, I have a, a, a Weight Watchers meeting that I go to. And I cannot tell you how much I look forward to that. And, and it's changed my life about how I eat. And it made me conscious about food that I'm putting in my mouth. And I would have never thought that I would have done something like that. And, you know, another thing, you know, I, I, you know recycling. You know, my age group, we never thought about recycling anything. Well, I have six grandchildren. And my, you know, they, all to today in school, they learn about environment, recycle, all that stuff. And they would challenge me every time they saw me doing something that wasn't in keeping with keeping up the environment. And I learned from them. You know, it, you learn all the time. If you just open your heart, open your ears and open your eyes. You know, I want to be learning something when they're putting that last nail in the box. Howard, which is, sounds like a very long time from now, hopefully. And Howard Bihar, in addition to writing your own very fine books, including It's Not About the Coffee, Leadership Principles from a Life at Starbucks, you're clearly a reader and student of others as well. What books or other creative works of any kind have been especially influential with you that you would recommend to others? Well, uh, I mean, these are a couple of them are older books. One was written by James Autry on servant leadership. 
And it's just a really wonderful little book on servant leadership. It's not very long, and I really liked it. Another book that I just love, this is about working together and about servant leadership, is The Boys in the Boat. And The Boys in the Boat was a, a, book, a, a, a book written about the University of Washington crew in 1936 when they, when they went to the Olympics and they won and what it took for them to do it. These were all, for the most part, poor young guys coming from logging areas in the state of Washington or farming areas, and what they went through and how they put, did it. Nobody ever thought that that would happen. But that is a, such a wonderful book, I recommend it to everybody. Claire Booth Luce famously instructed John Kennedy that everyone, including presidents, are ultimately encapsulated in a single sentence. What would you like your one sentence to be? Um, he set out to serve others, and he did. Howard Bihar, how can listeners best follow and connect with you on social media? Well, you know, everybody can have my email. It's hb at howardbihar.com. And my, my uh, um, cell phone number is 206-972-7776. And I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter all the time, every day, with something about leadership. And I might say, as one who follows you, it's outstanding stuff that a lot of us really appreciate and learn from. Thank you, Howard Bihar. It's been a delight and an honor to have you with us. And thank you for your service and leadership. Can I tell you something? That was the best interview I've ever had, period. Oh, many thanks. You made my day. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics and follow us on Twitter at James Strock and connect via our website, Serve to Lead. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.